0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and now Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 582, and we welcome Roland Vieira. We're going to these are cleanup hitter for the Moisture Mob series, and today's title is The Life and Times of Renowned Flooring Inspectors, Stories from the Dark Side into the Trenches. Before we get started, we couldn't do the show for free without our sponsors, so let's thank our sponsors.
2: IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at ciriscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at iaqa.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org iaq radio industry sponsors are aeml laboratories learn more at aemlinc.com particles plus learn more at particlesplus.com and healthy indoors magazine subscriptions available at healthy indoors.com
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to report that John Lobo Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, was first to identify an N95 FFR as a type of filtering facepiece respirator, which removes particles from the air that are breathed through it. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, April 17, 2020, has been sponsored by IDEA is a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. When a form of mechanized carpet making was developed after World War II, uh, I guess name, name the industry, which became the hub for, for this work in the United States. Back to you, Joe.
1: All right. Thank you, Cliff. So today we've got Rowan Vieira. Rowan is a renowned flooring inspector from San Jose, California, and he's going to share with us some hard lessons he's learned over the career spanning four decades in the trenches, well-known in the flooring industry with manufacturers, carpet mills, installation firms, retail outlets, and cleaning companies. He's got a history of working with moisture measurement. Segment of the industry, in fact, is known has been the guy to have suggested a stick be developed as an attachment to moisture meters long before the digital age of selfie sticks. Inspectors know that uh, they can come to Roland for an independent third-party inspection and uh, help people with manufacturing defects, warranty claims, etc. Welcome to the show, Roland.
3: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to have you, and um, we got got you out of the field for a day. You're a field guy, right? Pretty much in the field every day? I am in the field every single day. That's what I thought, and I, I guess you've uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the flooring industry. What are your roots?
3: Well, um, I was uh, I was um, kind of raised in the trades. My dad, aunts, uncles, everybody were through the trades: plumbers, electricians, carpenters, contractors. When I was 13 years old, my dad built a, uh, he did all the TI for a very large carpet store here in the uh, San Jose area. And the owners of the store asked him if I wanted a job. I was 13 years old, Hmm. my first job away from the family, and I was a warehouseman in a carpet store. The rest is history. I worked my way through different uh, uh, flooring retailers. Uh, I did. Warehouse work. I did estimating. I did sales. I did uh, installation management, customer service, and just kept right on going. You know, the, do you have any?
1: How big is the flooring industry in the United States? I know we didn't have this in the prep, but uh, any idea? I mean, is it as big as it seems?
3: Well, I don't know how big it seems, but it's. If my recollection from the last marketing stuff I read is correct, it's somewhere between one and two billion dollars a year. I think flooring specifically is somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 million, 780 million, something like that.
1: Wow, it's a good size chunk. Sure is it's a big part of every building too you can't You can't put a building together without flooring in fact it's kind of the the foundation that everything else is on top of here. You have a motto: third party observation and comment on all flooring issues, problems, and complaints. How did you come to develop it and uh follow up to that would be what what recommendation was purposely left out or was recommendations purposely left out? So issues, problems, and complaints.
3: Okay. All right. Well, the, the scope of my business has always been troubleshooting problems. As, you know, all of my literature says, I don't broker, I don't sell, I don't install. I troubleshoot problems. So back in the, I'm going to say the late 80s. Now, keep in mind, I started this business in 1982. So back in the late 80s, things were going reasonably well for a startup. And I hired this guy to do a logo. And he came up with the logo that I currently use. I've used it that long, um, my flooring forensics logo. And after I had the logo and I started putting it into place, um, I started thinking, I need a tagline. Something like the New York Times uses, you know, all the news that fit, that's fit to print, you know, something like that.
1: Right.
3: And so originally I came up with honest observation and comment, blah, blah, blah. And I used that for a while and I got to thinking, you know, that kind of implies that other people aren't honest. Or maybe it implies that I didn't used to be honest. I don't know. So then I changed (laughs) I changed honest to professional and I did that for a while and I thought well you know that's kind of like self-evident professional observation and comment. I said that doesn't get me where I want to be and then I came up with third party and I said that's it because that's what I am. I'm third party and so um and I, I think people understood third party because i vacillated between third party and independent uh i think people understood third party more uh than they did independent and i think a lot of my clientele which are attorneys legal types, stuff like that they readily understand what third party means So it was third party observation on comment on all floor covering issues, problems, and complaints. It's been that for years and years and years. And the reason why I didn't put recommendations or solutions or anything like that in there is because that's really not the essence of what I do. I troubleshoot problems. Once all of that is done, it's not unusual for me to be retained to go ahead and, and develop and or implement some solutions, but that's really not the crux of what I do. I identify problems.
1: You know, Rowan, as far as flooring inspectors go, I, I assume, and I'm not far from an expert on the topic, I assume most of the work you do is commercial type work and, and maybe some high-end residential. Is that true? <laughs> and and was it always that way?
3: Yeah, no, that would be correct. It wasn't always that way. When I first started, um, it was almost 100% residential work. Now back in the day, and I'm going back to the eighties and even the first half of the nineties, um, the number of inspection requests from manufacturers specifically was huge and I am I I can tell you right now that it would not be unusual for me to have eight or 10 inspections scheduled for a day, hmm. five days a week. Uh, in the early 90s, after my daughter was born, I cut that back to four days a week um, so that I could have more time with the kid. And then the second daughter was born. I needed more time again. But anyway, uh, you know, but that was not unusual. Now... Currently, and then since that time, of course, I migrated kind of away from residential and much more towards commercial. I still do some residential work, um, but there's not that many requests for residential work. Um, The manufacturers don't seem to request it very much. And I get this information not just from my own experience, but also from talking to other people that are out there in the field that do what I do. Uh, It's like, hey, how much residential work do you do? Um, And they'll say, that's hardly nothing anymore. Nobody calls, you know, it's, that's just the way it is. So part of it is just the changes in the industry. Uh, Part of it is maybe because I charge too much. I don't know, but. Well, I was wondering, I mean,
1: is it unusual to have a third party person on a residential project, especially, you know, your typical project that's not you know a real high-end multi-million dollar home and maybe there are less warranty issues now than there were in the past or maybe they're being
4: resolved.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> all right
1: okay so i assume it's the opposite
3: yeah it is the opposite uh there are uh no shortage of warranty issues whether those issues are flooring or other issues with the home itself so there is no shortage i am heartened to see so many people making very concerted very strong and very positive efforts at taking care of the warranty items the failure items um At least here in my Northern California area, um, I found a lot of responsibility. People go on in and people really, really, really trying to take care of things. Hmm. The problem is, is many, whether it be dealers or installers or even builders, don't really understand what the issues are And they are so clouded by extravagant warranty claims, um, you know, warranty statements, I should say, or warranties, period, that it gets a little confusing and it gets a little disheartening for them.
0: Cliff, let me turn it over to you. I know you had a follow-up. Yeah, I I, I do. Um, I want to go back, Roland. uh, You know, you were talking about this third-party... inspection service that that you provide and you go in and you don't provide um, recommendations uh, initially and then you said that you oftentimes afterwards get approached to provide uh, recommendations and uh, you know possibly you know carry out the implementation of whatever else is necessary um, in some parts of the industry such as mold remediation, Uh, That would be considered to be a conflict of interest for you to do both, uh, you know, the inspection and the implementation of of the solution. Personally, uh, I came out of the pest control industry and we would commonly go out. We would make an inspection for pests if we found it. Uh, we would provide an estimate it was really up to the client you know the people selling the property or whatever whether or not they accepted it or not uh, the industry has been doing that ever since there's been a pest control industry and they still do it and it's not been considered to be a uh, third party and it's my belief that third parties that wanted to get involved with this industry were the ones that said it was a conflict of interest for a party to do two things and i was just wondering if you could Opine on
3: that. Yeah. So I didn't make myself clear. So let me clear it. Let me clear it up. Okay. I will develop recommendations uh, to make a remedy or a repair. Okay. Okay. I won't do that work. Okay. And I won't. Usually, I will not hire anybody to do the work. On very rare occasions, uh, if it's a, a very short list of my very good clients, I will go ahead and hire people to do the work. Okay. I personally will not do the work. Okay. I, will, I will create a document that says, this is what you need to do. This is exactly how it should be done. These are the products I want you to use. Um, and that's it. Now, as for, let's just say I did do the work. Okay. As for that being a conflict of interest, I don't necessarily believe that it is. I already have credibility. Right. The owner or contractor or dealer or whoever, okay, already thinks enough of me that I went ahead and that they asked me for, uh, you know, what to do and how to do it. So I don't necessarily think that it's a conflict of interest. I will tell you where a conflict of interest comes in in the claims inspection industry is when you have, let's just say, a very comparable, well, let's just say, let's just say me, okay? I'm, I'm capable, okay? But let's just say that not only do I do claims inspections, but I own my own uh, uh, floor covering dealership. Or installation, um, you know, shop. For me to go on out and do inspections on somebody else's work, okay, uh, while I am a competitor of theirs, that is a conflict of interest. That pisses me off, okay. and that happens more times than not. I hmm. Thank
2: you.
1: There's a, a chat some independent inspectors avoid engaging the manufacturer of a product system thinking that keeps their assessment purely independent without influence or interference. Are not the opinions or input from the manufacturer valuable and should they be considered or should not be considered a conflict?
3: Well, I'll tell you the way I approach this because I will frequently work for a manufacturer or two or three or however many and it's not just manufacturers anybody else do. <clears throat> and they will say after you've gone on out and looked at it give me a call and we can talk about it no that's not the way I do things we can talk about it all you want after I have committed my opinion to paper mm. not before that okay. I went out and looked at a very high end uh beautiful, beautiful hardwood floor installation, oh six weeks or so ago. Manufacturer says, After you go on out and look, give me a call. And I says, Well, that's really not the way I do it. I will look at it, I will put my report together, and then we can talk. He says, Well, I'd rather talk first so that you get everything right. <laughs> I said, well, if you were concerned about me getting everything right, you probably should have called somebody else. And so we went ahead, and after I did the inspection, I did the report. That manufacturer called twice before he got the report and left voicemail messages, and I didn't bother responding to those because I had already stated my point. And, you know, the report came out in the manufacturer's favor. But still, I was put off by, you know, this continual, oh, we got to chat. It's like, no, what you want to do is you want to, you know, kind of participate in a little CYA. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really, I'm not into that. And now I will tell you that the large manufacturers, let's say a Mohawk or a Shaw or I don't know who else would you consider large. Couldn't you know compared to the size of those two behemoths, you couldn't really consider anybody else large. But they don't do that. They'll say, "Here, go look at this. Send me a report. Thanks." That's it. That's all the communication.
1: You know, on your website, there's a photo of a water geyser spouting out of a floor. What's what's going on with that, Roland? <laughs>
3: Well, the gentleman in that photo is a good buddy of mine named Bill Lapita. Bill is pretty close to retirement now. He lives down in Florida. And um, the photo was taken by another good friend of mine, Peter Craig. And that was a job that was down in, I think it was Bakersfield, here kind of like South Central California. And um, that job was on its second failure so this it was originally installed then there was failure one and that was identifying failure two and you know it's kind of interesting was it einstein that said the uh oh what is it um crap just went doing back something
0: different, doing the same thing, expecting different results. Expecting same different thing results. over
3: and over again, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> expecting different results. That was it, right? Which happens a lot. You know, a job fail, hey, well, let's go ahead and pull this stuff and let's install the same old stuff the same old way. I'm sure it'll be different. And then the job fails again. I don't know how many times of happened, But anyway, that was the story on this one. And it just so happens that Bill was on the floor um, poking around at these blisters, and Pete just happened to have the camera, and so the shot was taken. It will live in infamy. Um, I use that shot on my website, and I think it's on my brochure also, last page of the brochure, and um, that's essentially what it was. And it's just it's just a classic photo
0: i asked, asked John to see. What well, was, was going on there? How how they have so much water under those blisters or whatever?
3: Excuse those me. were osmotic blisters.
0: And osmotic,
3: okay. Yeah, and they're under very uh, very high um, pressure. They're under very high pressure. And so if you pop it, there you go.
1: So. Is that a common issue? I mean, and was this a slab on grade or was it a different type of construction?
3: No, this was a slab on grade. I imagine
1: you you get a lot of slab on grade type issues be, because you're out in San Jose area.
3: Right, we do. We do mm-hmm. almost everything out here is slab on grade anymore.
1: And when you say osmotic pressure, could you define that for listeners?
3: No, it's just a fancy word I heard and I try to <laughs> I I try to throw it in whenever I can.
0: There you go, man. That's,
3: <laughs> right.
0: That's what consultants do.
3: Uh, is, is a, a condition where you'll essentially end up having a, a, a fluid uh, trying to equalize itself, actually contaminants within a fluid, trying to equalize itself on both sides of a membrane. Now, in this case, the membrane itself is actually the surface of the slab. And so what you'll end up with is you'll have, I'm just gonna throw out a number here. These numbers mean absolutely nothing. Okay, if you'll have, say, 100 parts per million um, on the underside of the surface, and you'll have two parts per million on the top side of the surface, okay, then what will happen is those two sides will try to equalize. And let's just say they'll try to equalize at 100 parts per million on both sides of the membrane, and the membrane is the slab surface. Uh, the result ends up being these osmotic blisters. Now, that was right there that you saw in that picture with Bill Lapido. That was an extreme example. That was that was very extreme. Uh, most of the time, you'll take one of these blisters and you'll either put a knife mark in it or you'll you'll you know just a little puncture with an awl or something. Sometimes you'll get a little squirt. Most of the times, the liquid will just kind of pour out. Um, But so that was an extreme there with with uh, Bill.
1: And that was through what a crack in the slab or. No. No. Wow.
3: It's just a different. Yeah. It's it's actually to tell you the truth, it's it's, um, it's it's liquid and salts that try to equalize on both sides of the slab surface. And it tries to equalize because you'll have some surface salts on the top. Um, and then you'll have, of course, surface salts on the bottom. But those surface salts on the bottom will have more moisture. And before you know it, it'll start to equalize on both sides.
0: And how according to that? Andrew from Tramex, it's uh, it's hydraulic pressure, not hydrostatic pressure. It is. And, and it's due to osmosis.
3: So. Yes.
0: How do you solve that?
3: How do you spell who?
0: How do
1: you solve that problem? Uh, Tough one, huh?
3: That is a tough one. That is a tough one. Uh, Typically, you've got to remove everything that's there. You've got to go ahead and really, really clean the slab surface, usually by blasting or shot blasting. Um, And then you go ahead and put back your seal coats, and or your coatings and or whatever else you're going to do.
1: Okay. So you wouldn't have to, I'm thinking of jackhammering out the slab and trying to figure out maybe a way of diverting that water, but, uh, wouldn't have to get that expensive.
3: No, no.
1: They make pretty good sealants now that can help with that issue. They do. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Um, let's, let's go a little bit into, um, how you become a flooring inspector. If I wanted to become a flooring inspector, what training would you recommend?
3: Well, if you wanted to become a flooring inspector, Joe, I think I'd tell you to stay in school and go get a real job. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'll tell you honestly, I got into this in 1982. And I was fortunate because that was a very good time to get into this. And I I, I'm, I I, work hard at my craft. I always have. And back in the 80s and the 90s, while I was getting established, there was plenty of work. These days, there's not enough work to make it happen for you. Um, I know some of my competitors here in the area that I talk to, And they they're up front because I'm up front with them and they're up front and they say, God, there's just really not much work, certainly not enough work to support myself and or a family. And a few of the guys that tried to do it have had to go back to what to their regular day job, which is, you know, doing installations or sales or something because there's just not enough, enough work out there. So in this day and age, I don't recommend it. Um, I, I just don't think that it's it's a viable career path for anybody.
1: Okay. Well, we got at least a couple people saying maybe uh, they're doing okay with it, and there's a lot of work. But uh, understood, you, you know, that's a we all have our opinions on the issue. Um, yeah. Pete saying that Carl the Academy. Oh, it's going too fast for me here. <laughs> He's, Cliff Lotnick said, Ellen Miller, instructor of AIDS International, aka RIA, the restoration industry. There you go. Gotta love that RIA, huh? We'll have them on again soon. All right. So, which organizations do you currently volunteer on, or, or are you serving on any committees? And if so, why? About the
3: only organization I'm semi active with is ASTM uh, I'm on the uh, one of the F subcommittees having to do with concrete moisture testing um, I was a real big proponent of industry associations and trade associations some twenty years or so ago um, and i I firmly believed in what I call cross pollinating in that you join individuals join a number of organizations so they could bring a body of knowledge from say one organization to another organization. And if everybody did that, it wouldn't be long before all of these organizations were on the same page with the same body of knowledge. And, but that didn't work. Um, And some of the associations, not all of them, but some of them, uh, are agenda driven, and and once the suits get involved, it's you know the the association starts to lose any benefit. At least to, to me. And so, with that having been said, ASTM is about the only one that I still participate in.
1: Okay. Hey, Cliff, do you no, have anything uh, before we go to halftime?
0: I, I do. I've, I've just got one quick one. Um, you were talking about, um, you mentioned something that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and I know it's near and dear to Consigli's heart as well, uh, which was the same body of knowledge. And I, I guess, does the flooring industry have a written body of knowledge or an outline of of the body of knowledge? Just wondering.
3: No. Not really. Um, The, um, you know, like some of the installation trade associations, they have um, installation guidance. Um, Like uh, Carpet and Rug Institute has, you know, a very basic set of installation standards. Um, You, to kind of get product specific type of information you kind of have to go outside of the industry um sure. yeah we kind of have to go outside of the industry
1: okay all right let's stop here we're going to break for halftime we're going to come back we've had uh roland vieira here joining us the cleanup hitter of the moisture mob we'll be back in uh, 30 seconds with the second half of our interview
2: IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at particlesplus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at healthyindoors.com and AEML laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at aemlinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org, and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. CIRI, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at ciriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I-Science.org. ACGIH advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities interested in defining their science at ACGIH.
1: Okay, we're back. Second half,
0: Cliff. Let me let you uh, start it off here for the second half. Thanks, Joe. Um, you know you've been doing this a long time, and you know looking back over the course of your career, um, what lessons that have you learned the hard way that you can share with other people that are involved, um, in flooring and inspection?
3: Integrity is your most important skill and do not, do not get tangled up in situations where you think that your integrity might be compromised even just a little bit. Um, I I do work for lots of different people and, and many of the people I've become friends with, uh, flooring contractors, flooring installers, flooring dealers, and I value those friendships. And many times these people will ask me if they have a problem, I need you to go look at this problem. And this is a talk I have had with every single one of them at one point in time. It's like, I value your friendship. Your friendship means more to me than this problem you're having. And if you can promise that you and I are still going to be great friends, no matter what I go out and tell you, then I'm happy to help you. But if not, I just assume you go get somebody else. Mm. Integrity is the skill set that you need. Apart from, obviously, product knowledge and uh, being able to communicate. But keep your integrity. Don't ever let anything overshadow that.
0: Thank you. That's a great, I think that's great advice. Um, in terms of standards, do you prefer performance or prescriptive standards?
3: Well, I, my preference is performance standards. Without a doubt, hands down. Uh, what, think,
4: mean,
3: what, what are the main
1: causes of some of the flooring litigation you get involved in?
3: It's people that didn't know what they were doing when they did it, <laughs> and there there is a mad rush. Uh, A project I'm working on right now, up in San Francisco, uh, where they're installing flooring into mock-up units. This is uh, a student housing project for one of the large universities. They're installing flooring in mock-up units. I had asked that they not do that because the building is not enclosed, there are no temperature controls, and it's cold in there. When I was up there doing testing, the temperature never got above 55 degrees for God's sakes. Hmm. And they're installing a temperature-dependent flooring material. They're installing luxury vinyl plank, uh, and that responds quickly and readily to changes in temperature. And, but as long as people continue to do stuff like that, because the schedule dictates everything, um, you know, that's why now that job is eventually going to fail. And my client is going to say, but you, the general, told us to install it. And the general is going to say, we did it because the owner said it had to get done. And then somebody is going to say, yeah, but flooring installer, you guys should have known better. And the flooring installer to say, yeah, we did know better and we told you. Well, at some point in time, that's going to, you know, that is how litigation starts. Uh, The other way that litigation starts is by nobody understanding and so that nobody wants to take responsibility. A job will fail and, and the first thing out of everybody's mouth is, well, I didn't do it i didn't do it it was fine when i left you know i don't know what happened but it wasn't anything i did and and then you you start to not return phone calls you start to not return to uh, respond to letters and then before you know it you know let's get the attorneys involved and i'm here to tell you that on a commercial project once everybody lawyers up and this thing goes through the process uh It is not unusual for the final outcome as part of litigation to be three, four, and sometimes as high as five times the cost of the original project. So if the original project was $100,000, it's not unusual for this project to end up, the, the fix, costing half a million or greater by the time you add it all in. So it's it's just not worth it. And these types of cases, they fall under the broader category of, say, construction defects litigation. These types of cases typically don't go to trial. I have literally heard judges say, you guys had better settle because this case is too big, too complex, and frankly, too boring to bring into my courtroom. (laughs) So you guys had better settle because I'll make sure you guys never even get a courtroom to have your little trial and and so with construction that's why it's you know i've been deposed hundreds of times and then an attorney will say well how often have you testified in court i don't know four times five times maybe well why is that it's because construction defects cases never make it to trial
1: i wonder if you could maybe give us the categories of of litigation i mean i'm thinking you know moisture problems are one the the surface being level or not level would might be another can you give us the types of categories you see most commonly
3: yeah um most commonly uh, it's installation related or at least that's the claim okay it was not installed properly it was not installed according to the manufacturer's recommendations um, the uh another broad category is performance of the product and lots of times on commercial projects you're not talking about just the performance of the floor that you can see a separate item is frequently the performance of the adhesive or the performance of the underlayment that's underneath the adhesive Um, so performance of the products that were used is another big one and it's very very rare that you'll get an actual product defect you know in other words this product is defective because frankly those are the easiest you walk in and let's say that your uh, your luxury vinyl plank floor that was installed in the lobby in the main corridors um you'll walk in and you'll look and you'll see that it has different gloss levels okay some of it is shiny some of it is dull that's an obvious defect. Nobody's going to nobody's going to argue with that. Okay. okay? A manufacturer may try and have said, "Well, you didn't mix the product from the boxes properly." It's like, "No, actually we did. That's why you got one dull one over here and one dull one over there. It's because we mixed it all up." So okay. for the most part product defects they're pretty obvious.
1: Okay? And when you do have moisture-related issues, is that typically because of uh, site conditions or not having the building ready for uh, installation of the flooring, maybe not closed in properly, not conditioned properly, concrete's not dried out yet?
3: Uh, Yeah, it's it's all of those things. It's always site-specific. And a lot of it has to do with the interior environment when the product was installed. Um, You know, moisture testing is most beneficial when it's done in the immediate proximity of the start of the installation. Many people, especially owners and GCs say, well, we got a break in our schedule right now. So let's go ahead and do the moisture testing now, even though the installation is still three or four months away. And I try to caution them that this isn't a good idea because things are going to change and things will be different once that product starts to get installed. But they'll say, no, go ahead and do it anyway. Because what they want to know is they say, well, if we have a problem, we want to be able to have some time to get proposals for mitigation and blah, 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 blah. And my response has always been, you know what? That should have already been set up as a contingency in the original specs and the original proposals so that if you do end up with what's deemed to be a moisture problem and you are going to employ a mitigation system, it's already all spelled out for you. There's no decisions that need to be made. The price is already there. The products are already there. It's already been approved by the architect and the GSA and whoever else needs to approve it. Um, So moisture testing is of most value uh, as close as you can get to the installation. And the real reason is because a lot of these moisture conditions are site-specific having to do with ambient conditions within the building itself. You you have excess of humidity. You have um, condensation and dew point issues. Uh, These are all very real issues that will will serve to sabotage an installation very quickly.
1: And I I guess... (laughs) as far as measuring the moisture content what do you recommend i mean there are you know is there a good standard out there that you follow what industry standard uh, do you think is best written and most useful i, I during this series and in talks with the uh, moisture mob here i've i've come to change my thoughts on that but uh, i want to get your thoughts
3: now the actual tests or test methods that are going to be employed on any particular job are actually dictated by the product that's going to be installed. Many manufacturers will say, uh, you know, this is what we require uh, when you test using this test method. Okay. These are the numbers. So at that point in time, you're actually, you're obligated to test by the test method that the manufacturer requires. Okay. Most of the manufacturing community right now is is requiring the what's called the in situ relative humidity test. Um, which is ASTMF, what is it, 2170. Which is where you drill holes into the concrete, set leaves, allow some acclimation time, and then you insert your probes and you the, uh, and then you hook up a meter to the probe that you've inserted, you read it, and that gives you a relative humidity of the air within the body of the concrete. Um, and you report that relative humidity, and then whoever you know takes a look and compares that number to what the manufacturer requires, and they do a go, no go, or mitigate, don't mitigate type of solution.
1: Okay, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. I got a bunch of text questions that just came in. I don't know if we'll have time to get to them all, so I want to make sure, Cliff, you get your questions answered. Yeah,
0: well, I was was looking at the text questions, and there was one that Howard sent in. So, um, Roland, what's your opinion of the recent trend to sell adhesives that are guaranteed for all conditions?
3: Well, actually, to tell you the truth, they're not necessarily sold for all conditions what they are done is they're sold with moisture so this would be rh relative humidity testing uh, so relative humidity up to 100 percent. and if you take a look at stuff and we have over the past five or six years uh Water isn't the problem. Um, you can take an adhesive and you can spread it out on a piece of plexiglass or something like that, you know, with a trowel, just apply it just like you normally would, let it cure and then stick it in a bucket of water and let it sit there and just check it every week or every two weeks or every four weeks or every four years, nothing's going to happen. It's sitting in a bucket of water. What the manufacturers don't state is they don't state that alkalinity uh, is, will actually cause the problem to the adhesive. It's not the water. So they can say, hey, this is good up to 100% relative humidity. And let's keep in mind also, relative humidity is not water. Relative humidity is a water vapor, and they are two totally different things. Now, uh, you folks in the mold industry, uh, relative humidity it can be one of your big enemies, as can water. In the fluorine industry, not so much. Water and alkalinity are the big problems. Relative humidity isn't. So anyway, but getting back to the adhesives, yeah, that's pretty much what I feel. It's like they will put together an adhesive. They've got their marketing people that have found a little wedge that they can get themselves uh, you know, a little leg up on the competition. And they'll go ahead and run with it. And you can't fault them. That's what they get paid to do. Mm -hmm. I get paid to look at that stuff and say, no, wait a minute. Okay, let's return to earth here and let's talk about this. And that is what I do for my clients. Uh, Real quick, a funny story. I was working on a project at a university just south of here uh, 10 years or so ago. And I was supposed to do a site inspection, got there. There's a number of attorneys and there's the owner and the facilities guys and everybody and their brother. And I walked on in and we went through the introductions And they had, uh, you know, a large, a pallet full of of the adhesive that was going to be used. And I pulled a bucket off the pallet and set it on the floor, sat on the bucket, grabbed another bucket, and just sat there and started reading the instructions. Finally, after a couple minutes, because I guess I was a slow reader or something, I don't know, the guy says to me, what are you doing? I says, I'm reading the instructions. He says, Oh, we've been doing this for years, man. It's, it, it's, it's all <laughs> the same. I says, well, were you aware that this adhesive was reconstituted just about 18 months or so ago? I says, even I don't remember all this stuff and I don't, and I, I don't even try to. So yeah, things change. You got to read the instructions. And a lot of what I do is putting the brakes on things for my clients
1: I've got five text questions here. I'm going to pick one out that I think we could probably do pretty quickly. In your reports, how much weight do you apply to the value of measuring and documenting ambient relative humidity and temperature at one moment in time versus what can be produced from a data logger over a week, month, or a year?
3: Well, I would prefer a data logger. Um, because that will give me ranges that I can work with. Uh, data loggers are not always um, possible. I'll tell you a story again. Um, I When I do testing, um, especially with new construction, I always try to set up data loggers. I used to always try to set up data loggers. <laughs> the last time I did was probably about a year or so ago. I had a project, I had five floors, I had two data loggers per floor. This is new construction. So I had a total of 10 data loggers. When I went to collect my data loggers after my testing was completed, I could only find three of them. Hmm. Lost seven data loggers. And they didn't get stolen. They got like bumped, knocked over, and eventually thrown away. And that was the norm for the data loggers on a, on a new construction site. You just, you just can't keep them. Now, many times I'll tell a general contractor, listen guys, you know it'd be nice to have some data loggers and if you wanna go ahead and set up some data loggers, I'll give you some guidance. And then I'd like you to share the information with me afterwards. Uh, but I just can't, I can't do it. My clients can't afford Having to, those things are expensive. Even the cheap ones are hundred and ten dollars, hundred and twenty dollars a piece. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I can't do it anymore.
4: Cliff,
1: let me turn it over to you, and then we'll go to the roundup. Oh, let's go to the roundup now.
0: I'll give Keith right, my let's time. Let's go to
1: the roundup. We'll have Cliff go first. Okay, we're having some trouble
0: with Zoom, but we're
1: we're here. Uh, Cliff, let's start with you, then we'll go to Pete, and then I've got a final question from your list here.
0: Okay, well, you know, they say it never rains in Southern California. <laughs> and, um, you know, then why and how does moisture cause flooring problems,
3: I guess? Yeah, I think that's a, a, an excellent question. Um, and this goes back to something I talked about earlier in this interview, where I was talking about doing the testing as close to the the time of the installation as possible, because a lot of the moisture issues that we encounter aren't necessarily stemming from the concrete itself. Uh, They have to do with environmental conditions, especially condensation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how a lot of that happens. Now there's, there's no doubt that you can have moisture related issues, moisture from the concrete itself, um, especially if you have a real wet sloppy concrete that has a very high water to cement ratio. Uh, the concrete itself could end up to be very, very porous. Um, lots of times um, the, the drying of the concrete itself is retarded just based on the specifics of the, uh, of the project type itself. Many times you'll end up with a with a slab that was poured and was sitting there and then gets rained on. I'm working on a project just like that right now where, yeah, after we poured the slab, but before we got the roof on, uh, it <laughs> rained and we had about uh two or three inches of water that sat on the slab for about three weeks. Well a rewet slab will take much longer to dry than a freshly poured slab. Hmm. and and so these are the different ways that that you end up with with moisture problems on the slab itself
0: you know if if i could follow up um you know restoration companies have a lot of equipment and they have a lot of expertise and they have you know moisture meters and, and and so on and so forth and it seems that there would be an opportunity for you know, drying contractors to dry water-damaged buildings, and so on and so forth, to somehow participate in helping—you uh, know—during con- new construction to provide you know environmental control and and so on and so forth. What I don't understand is is why they don't, or why the need for this is not recognized at the level of what's involved financially in some of these projects. What's at stake?
3: Money. It's as simple as that. Okay. Uh, some of the most tight-fisted people, and rightfully so, because they do operate on small margins, are general okay. contractors. Okay. Uh, uh, general contractors don't want to pay for anything that they think they don't need to pay for. Okay. And, and so that's exactly it. Uh, you can create lots of dry zones in areas, um, that, uh, but it costs money to do that. And okay. most generals won't do it. They will do it if somebody else gets to pay for it. Like if all of a sudden it's an insurance claim and they can turn it over to their carrier. Okay. That's one thing, but to just do it as a part of, Hey, you know what? This is a good idea. That, that's why it's not done.
0: Okay. Thanks Pete.
4: Yeah. Hey, good show. Good morning. Uh, Pete. Good morning. Well, after lunch here, uh mid morning coffee break for you out there on yeah. the left coast but listen um you know really good show i i just put a post up there everyone saying that the flooring guys know a lot about moisture uh you know humidity issues all these kinds of problems in buildings and there's a lot that can be learned uh from flooring guys in the, in the air quality industry and of course in the restoration industry cuz flooring are the roots of restoration i mean you know through gravity, moisture flows down, floors are horizontal. Almost every water loss is going to involve the floors in some manner. So uh, it's good after so many years, you know, industry is kind of emerging again. And I, you know, uh, a lot of the IQA guys, big emphasis, of course, you know, for years and even now is mold. And uh, without moisture, there's no mold. Uh, without understanding materials and how moisture passes through it affects it in dew point you're not going to have mold either. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this information has been shared by guys like you and William and Howard, you know, the, the flooring guys, of course, Bob, you know, I think it has been helpful for the, for the core audience of IQ Radio, which are, you know, indoor air quality inspectors, restoration guys, drying guys, et cetera. Um, so I got a couple of things. I got two questions for you, but I, I got a comment of something that you said earlier that I wrote down. Which I think uh, is very analogous um, to uh, to the indoor air quality industry. You said that when you were talking about litigation that most of the problems happen when the lawyers get involved when, when there's lawsuits, no matter whose fault it is, you know people point fingers is all because people stop communicating. they don't return calls, they don't return emails. Well, I, I can recall very early on when you know the indoor air quality industry started to collide with restoration. All the guys that were involved in any kind of litigation in indoor air quality always talked about that. They said when the building owners refuse to listen to a tenant's complaint or they think it's all just a bunch of hocus pocus stuff, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, they're not sick and uh, I don't smell anything in the building. When they start to do that, it creates... A problem which usually leads to a lawsuit, and when these lawsuits happen, everyone gets rolled up in the suit, even if you have the the little culpability or perceived culpability, because the lawyers, the plaintiff lawyers, think that they work on on some kind of of a retainer, which a lot of them do, or a a, a contingency. What happens is they know that some of the people have very minor or no responsibility will give a little bit of money just not to be bothered and hassled because it costs more, which is an unfortunate part of the legal process. So I I think that's a very important piece of information that even though maybe a lot of people on this call and we know it, sometimes it doesn't hurt to hear that sermon every once in a while again, is that when you stop communicating, there's going to be problems. Now, one of the questions I have because I'm the restoration guy, is, and this came out of some of the little email dialogues that we had leading up to vetting the questions for the in- interview, Roland, was you said that you occasionally on and off get involved from in being called by insurance adjusters out in the Bay Area because after some kind of an insurance claim, there's some failing, uh, there's an installation or a flooring failure, and they want you to come in impartially to determine who's at fault. And, of course, the restoration guys say, well, it's not me, and they want to blame it on something else. And uh, oftentimes you find that not to be the case. And what really struck me, you were kind of apologizing to me, but trust me, I don't ever want anything sugar-coated. You know, it is what it is. Because uh, any guy who's out there doing drying, and if they're not using meters and they don't have some criteria to document the process before, you know, they install the goods, whether it's in-house or through contract. Subcontracting, you know, that's kind of on them, and they're leaving themselves open. So, why don't you talk a little bit about experiences if you had with the insurance companies? How often? What kind of questions they ask? Who's normally responsible? And really, most importantly, why do you think that these these guys are not drying the concrete, or they think the concrete's dry before they install the goods, and then they they want to disclaim liability? I mean, it's a broad topic, and there's a lot there, but you know, weigh in on it.
3: Well, I I think uh, a big part of the problem is they don't have the necessary skill set that it takes to analyze the job site conditions properly. You know, maybe you guys can answer this for me. So one thing I've I've always had an issue with, and nobody's ever been able to explain it to me. You set up a a dehumidifier. Let's just say a residential property. You set up a dehumidifier or two, and so this thing collects moisture from the air. And what they'll do is they'll drain it into a bucket, a five gallon bucket that's right next to the dehumidifier. Well, as you're pouring water into that bucket, water that's already in the bucket is also evaporating into the air. So what you're doing is you are essentially feeding moisture into the air that you are then pulling out of the air, throwing it back into the bucket. Uh, this is a very common occurrence on the residential side, and I will say, well, what exactly were you drying? Were were you were you drying the bucket of water? Were you drying the air? How is the air going to get dry? Because you keep you keep recharging the air with additional moisture that's here in the bucket, and the guys just look at you like you're an idiot. Which, yeah.
4: Okay. So, you know, let me comment in that role. First of all, that used to probably be the case a while back. Anybody that's still doing that has got, you know, small equipment. Uh, it, 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 that's not really the norm in the industry, but through most professionals. They used to be the buckets. Guys don't use that much anymore. A lot of times, if they can, almost most of the equipment today, particularly refrigerant dehumidifiers, have pump-out hoses. So they're going to run it to a drain outside. They may put it to a toilet and put the seat down, something along along that line. So you don't kind of get the drying loop where you know you, you're evaporating moisture and keep drying it. Um, I but I, I think I think it's more than that. I think a lot of times they when you have low amounts of moisture, high amounts of moisture in a material, but low evaporation rates, much of the equipment that they put in there is not effective in that level of drying. And so therefore, they're spending a bunch of time and energy. That's not cost-effective to dry something, and this is what gets property owners, insurance companies, get some really agitated because they feel like, could I have replaced it? You know, how many times am I paying for something? So, you know, that that's not the norm. You know, you run into that. I get it, and there's still some of that out there in the field, but it, it's not as common as it used to be years ago. Because keep,
3: keep something in mind, Pete. Okay. We're talking about failures here. We're talking about a very narrow subset um, of, of projects. Okay, you asked me about failures. Now, I'm not talking about how is it normally done. I'm talking about what happened that led to this failure. So that really, really makes a much smaller basket of projects. That's what I'm talking about.
4: Well, and, and that was the heart of my question is that I think what's happening is guys are not they don't understand how to dry the concrete. They don't understand how to to determine what The, the dry dry should be before those materials are installed and it's either due to lack of knowledge and not having the right meters or understanding how to use meters um, having the wrong equipment that's not very cost effective to dry because Drying, and are not going to determine how much water's in the bucket. That just means you're pulling moisture, right? Without the meters and making the connection that you're effectively drying and that you're actually pulling moisture out of the materials, you know, it's not, it's not. You're not spending the client's money properly to to do effective drying that can lead to speeding the job up and then ensuring that you're going to get a good installation. I think it's all connected. Uh,
3: well, a- it probably P- is. But I always wonder too uh, if you're going to go ahead and you're going to set up a dehumidifier on a site. Um you need some sort of a containment, otherwise you're dehumidifying the entire zip code. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know yeah. um, if, if you set up a dehumidifier in the middle of a kitchen and you've got no containment, uh, you're pulling air from all over the place.
4: Well, no, I agree with that. Cliff. I, I hold on, I just want to finish this. Uh, you're 100 percent right, and most competent restorers know and understand that, and then that's when the whole concept years ago of tenting. Where they tent, they close down the areas. Companies will use small desiccant dehumidifiers to create a higher vapor pressure differential to draw the moisture out. So, so you're right. If a guy is just uh, trying to, to, to create vapor pressure differential with a small dehumidifier in a large area to drive moisture in concrete, that, that's a waste of time and money. So there, to me, it just seems that that's a competence issue. Um, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it's a blemish on people who are in the industry you who know, do that work, but... Um, real
3: quick, Cliff, real quick, okay? Is okay. that a competency issue, or is 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 the insurance company getting what they're willing to pay for
0: it? Um Let me go off on initial on another tangent. I think I'm going to answer your question. Yeah. Okay, first of all, let's talk about the water in the bucket, okay? Unless there's a fan blowing on the surface of that water, that water is under surface tension. That's inside that bucket, so the evaporation out of that bucket is is going to be very very slow. I'm not saying it's non-existent, but it would be very very incremental. And you know, if you wanted to put a lid on the bucket and put a hole in it, you know, theoretically you could do that. But um, you know, for many many years, that's the way people did it, and we really didn't we really didn't have issues with it. As far as putting the dehumidifier in the kitchen goes, uh, I don't agree with tenting, unless the rest of the home is is not drier. You follow me? If the rest of the house is drier, the moisture and humidity wants to equalize, so it's going to equalize. So theoretically, if the rest of the house is drier than this wet area, I personally would not put containment and I'll dry it much faster uh, allowing two things to work the dehumidifier in that room along with the uh, the the beneficial moisture conditions uh, you know in the rest of the house I think a lot of times with the industry tents all the stuff and they charge to do it and you know the primary thing they want to do is show the customer the maximum amount of water in the bucket And I was never trying to do that. I wanted to show the the, the customer that the materials were dry uh, the fastest. And you know, sometimes we'd open the windows or what, whatever. You know, we'd do some things that were kind of crazy, but uh, it helped and it saved it saved us time. So
4: yeah, say hey, Cliff. Look, if someone's going to use tenting, I agree. A lot of times, I think it's probably used inappropriately and maybe it's used for show and tell. But most of the guys that did that that are effective are doing it number one because they're going to use desiccants or they're going to use heat. They're going to, they're going to create an environment that's going to be quicker and more effective than if they just used the dry air. That's what I'm suggesting. I'm, I mean, you know anybody can take something and really get it all bent out of shape no, and, and I, I, I disagree
0: with you Pete you know when you look okay. at what's taught in these classes it's create the drying chamber create the dry but that's not, all I'm you hear over that. and over and over and,
4: not, and not, not... but I, but you know I'm talking well that I'm not talking about that what I'm talking about is is applying the sound fight, uh, principles based on experience to be cost effective at the end of the day if if you can't explain to your customer that you gave them value in drying what the bill is. With that, it's whether they perceive you did. If you can't do that, it doesn't matter what you do on the project. Okay. Let me, uh, I mean, it, you know, me a
1: final question in for Roland here.
4: Roland, yeah. and it, it directly relates to
1: what you guys are discussing here because I think the, the key point is the outcome. How dry did you get that material? And my question for you, Roland, is that a lot of restoration contractors are taught to establish a dry standard. So to find an area that's dry, to measure that typically with a non-penetrating moisture meter, and then to work that, to make that their goal for drying the area that was water damaged, that that was, you know, uh, affected by whatever type of water-related issue there was. Does that make sense to you as a, A flooring inspector?
3: You mean you can't use the old test of, well, it looked dry. (laughs) dry." Um, Yeah, that's the only way to do it, to be quite honest with you. And I also do that when I'm going on in and I'm doing an evaluation. Let's say you had a water loss in a kitchen and a dining room. All right. I'll go to one of the farthest bedrooms away and I'll take a few moisture measurements with my meter, non-intrusive. Okay, and I'll establish a baseline, and let's just say I'm using, uh, let's just say the, uh, say Tramex concrete encounter, and and the baseline is three and a half, four, four and a quarter, three and a half, four, four, four. Okay, that's my baseline. Okay, then all of a sudden I'll get into where the water loss occurred, and I'll take my measurements again. All of a sudden it's six, six point five, six point seven, five point nine okay this area where you had the water loss is still wet please don't try to tell me that it's not and please don't try to tell me that the water came after you put the new floor in because it didn't it was always there so yes that's exactly the way it should be done
1: excellent i appreciate that and uh hey, J- go- hey joe
4: yes joe sir? I, I know we're getting close to running over but uh, i got the one final question that i'd like to ask um mr roland um so how'd you come up with the name of your company? The flooring forensics, you know, forensics is a term that's been thrown around in the industry here. Cliff, this was the question I <laughs> was in a lot. You know, we have some issues of how the word forensic air quotes is being used in the industry because we think it's being used inappropriately, but, um, you know, you've had that name for many, many years and, uh, interesting. So how'd you come up with it?
3: Well, you know, I, uh, um, I um, I was looking for something, a name that would identify what I did without having to spell it all out. And fluorine obvious was was obvious because that's floors. And forensics is actually a scientific study. That's really what it is. That's forensics comes out. Most people use it in the medical context and that's really where it, most people know it from. Um, but I've had many, many people say, oh, CSI, huh? And actually, to tell you the truth, I was flooring forensics long before the first CSI ever came. And where I actually got the idea to use the name, and us old guys will know this, but the old television show with Jack Klugman called Quincy, M-E. Oh, yeah, that was a great show. Yeah, Quincy was a medical examiner, and that's what he did was forensics. And I used to enjoy that show. And, but I get asked this question a lot, flooring forensics, how did you come up with that? And hence, that's why in my brochure, and on my new website, that's going to be coming out, um, flooring forensics, question mark, because that's always a common question that I get. So if you look at my brochure up on the top where I'm talking about the company, it says flooring forensics, flooring forensics, question mark, and that's it.
4: Yeah, well, that's a great story. And it's funny that you mentioned Quincy because he really, by trade, he's a pathologist. And I remember years ago when me and Cliff first listened to Steve Brick, he defined himself as a building pathologist that he would come in oftentimes after there was something wrong and the building was sick or it was dead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then he had to, you know, see whether he could bring it back to life again. So uh, anyway, it's funny that uh, I guess you, ha- you have the building science roots and didn't even know it. Anyway, yeah, hey, I listen, guess. Roland, that was really good. Uh, I wish we could have spent more time, you know, on this, uh, getting into this whole the, the drying discussion and uh you know the moisture content and how it affects restores and the insurance industry. Maybe it's maybe it's time, maybe it, you know, to maybe some future shows that we may do along that because I think those are real issues that uh, that that are things that need to be addressed. And me and Cliff, we go back and forth once in a while, but we agree in a lot more than we disagree. And I. I certainly agree with him that there's a lot of stuff that's probably being taught. That's uh, a little bit over the top. And, um, but you know, Hey, to each their own, I think, uh, the consumers generally speaking are pretty smart and maybe they could sort through the, you know, the fact and the fiction, but anyway, thanks a lot. You did a great job. Um, and, uh, thanks for your passion and, and your hard work.
3: Well, I want to say uh, thank you very much to all three of you. Um,
1: before I, we go, really Rowan, anything you'd like to add real quick before we go?
3: No, no, not really. Not all really. Right. I can't think anything. Watch, as soon as we hang up, I'll say, oh, darn. I should. <laughs> oh, you know what? Let me end with one of my favorite quotes. Uh, this is actually, it's attributed to Mark Twain all the time, but it probably wasn't Mark Twain. It was probably a contemporary of his named Josh Billings. And to paraphrase the quote, because I've forgotten exactly how it goes, it goes like this though: It's not what you know for sure that gets you into trouble; it's what you know for sure that just ain't so.
1: <laughs> Thank and you, Ron Vieira.
3: <laughs> I think it might be. <laughs> All nice right,
4: to, look, to look, have that's going to be the blog for sure. Uh, well, uh, you cool. know that. Hey, and, and Bob Bonwell, who uh, you know we lost, he, he had an old saying that said, uh, "You can't exceed your own knowledge." You can't do what you don't know. You know, you just don't know what you don't know. And that's really a variation that it's funny how all these old timers have been around for a long time, one way or another, they all kind of, they may frame it differently, but experience taught them the hard way. So anyway. That's
3: right. That is right. All right. Thanks, my friend. Thank
1: you, Roe Vier. Much appreciated having you on the show today. I want to thank all the Moisture Mob members. I'd love to get together, maybe have a panel show with the Moisture Mob sometime. Uh, I also want to thank my co-host the Z man Cliff Slotnick, the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog Pete Consigli, John, you got to have faith at the controls, most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.